Welcome to the Geneva Center for Security Policy Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Paul Vallée, Associate Fellow in the Global Fellowship Initiative. For the past weeks this spring, I've been talking with subject matter experts to discuss issues of peace, security, and international cooperation. Thanks for tuning in. In recent days since this spring and the beginning of our weekly podcast, the rollout of vaccinations, however unequal in different parts of the world, has given us hope about the COVID-19 pandemic. Yet this is also the time to reckon with other major public health questions that were sidelined by our preoccupations with the pandemic. As some of these concern our everyday lives and can easily affect each of us, and to remind us there are other ways to take care of ourselves, my guest today is Joanna Ralston. Joanna Ralston, who is currently the CEO of the World Obesity Foundation since 2017, has over 25 years experience in global health and development. She's a global leader in advocating for non-communicable diseases and a dual Swedish and US citizen. After training at the Harvard Business School and the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, her career took us to the American Cancer Society to set up global programs on cancer and tobacco control projects in more than 30 countries. She proceeded on to the World Heart Foundation based in Geneva, which she was appointed CEO in 2011, working closely with the World Health Organization and other UN agencies tackling cardiovascular diseases. She was instrumental in implementing the Non-Communicable Diseases Declaration adopted that year and worked to place strong targets on cardiovascular diseases mortality reduction in the WHO Global Action Plan and the Sustainable Development Goals. She's worked and published with many institutions devoted to medicine and public health, and not least, she's been a member of the GCSP Global Fellowship Initiative for a few years now. So it's nice to welcome you, Joanna, to the podcast. Thank you for speaking with us today. Paul, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much. Um, And it's a pleasure to see you again. Um, As I have mentioned, my time with GCSP as a fellow in 2017 was one of the best professional experiences of my life and has really broadened my thinking in ways that I hope are helpful for the work that I do, but even um, I can share how they've influenced my thinking on on COVID and and what has been going on recently. Glad to see you again, Joanna. Mm -hmm. My first question to you, uh, of course, is uh, as director of the World Obesity Foundation, what did you observe of the evolution and state of public health during these uh, 16 months since the COVID pandemic was declared? It's a great question. And it's certainly an understatement to say that the world was not prepared for a pandemic of COVID's magnitude. And our public health systems were certainly not uh, adequately prepared or resourced. I think one of the key points is that systems were not, for lack of a better term, talking to each other across borders, across countries, or even within countries in ways that were helpful, not sharing data often for political reasons, or having just different systems that were somehow incompatible. Um, International health regulations, IHR, as we know, is a tool that's meant to to help sort of um, raise to the surface critical health security issues. But IHR itself could be best described as necessary, but not sufficient in how information was shared. Helen Clark, who chaired the uh, International Pandemic Preparedness uh, Panel alongside Helen Johnson Sirleaf to say, how do we, you know, how do we avoid happening again? described IHR and the systems that were in place as actually analog systems in a digital world. So we, on the one hand, we're getting information moving rapidly and a virus that was certainly moving even more rapidly. And yet, on the other hand, having processes and systems in place for sharing information between and among countries that were 
just not somehow fit for purpose. Um, and again, IHR, unfortunately, seem to have slowed things down a bit. Even the global health security agenda broadly, and I know that that's an area that GCSP has been involved with very much, and I've, I've enjoyed being part of, of that as well. It was overly focused on sort of this idea of securitization as almost building up walls and, and not about uh, not enough on understanding almost the opening side of it, of needing to share information across walls, across silos, across borders. Not enough understanding, perhaps, of the how much politics, culture, different forms of communication play a role. And even then, of course, the, the virus itself, it's a disease that had this very deadly combination of transmissibility and an ability to be really asymptomatic for a long time. So, so uh, it, it spread uh, insidiously. But again, I think one of the, the key points there is also just the slowness of information. Dr. Tedros had declared this, a, you know, a, of international concern um, in, in late January. And yet the entire month of February was just a, a political uh, period um, where a lot uh, there were a lot of missed opportunities to uh, to close borders, to um, institute simple public health rules. I do one of those say because I'm a profound uh, believer in public health, and obviously it's, it's, it's my work, that this has also been a positive period. We, you know, we're all thinking a lot more about public health now, which I think is great. It's much more in the common discourse. And then I think part of it is to understand, too, that you know, health isn't just about a sort of a single infectious you know, agent or pathogen transmitting, transmitting from one you know, place to another, person to another. But it's, it's showing how interrelated we are, how interrelated our systems are, um, and in fact, how vulnerable we are, but also how closing borders are engaging in, in the kind of vaccine nationalism that unfortunately um, we've seen quite a bit of. That's not going to help a world in which people and goods cross border with uh, breathtaking speed and ease. And, and indeed, in a world that is inherently has been more open and closed than closed with, with lots of good, good reason. You know? I think the other piece, I just like to make this point, you know, when, when you work in health, there's this temptation, you know, there kind of, there's sometimes a tension between public health and the sort of medical treatment clinical side. And, and I think uh, that the, the research innovations we see on the, on the, on the sort of the clinical side, uh, even things like, you know, surgical procedures and, and even things like genome mapping and immunotherapy, there's all these exciting, very high tech, expensive, uh, you know, extraordinary things happening. And, and, and public health is kind of like the, 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 the plain sibling to a very exciting sibling, if you will, of, 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 um, of the sort of the science and medical side. And so public health is a lot of it's, it's actually not, you know, it's about things like wash your hands, wear a mask. In my world, it's, you know, also, you know, get exercise, eat nutritious diet, um, uh, you know, get screened regularly, et cetera. So public health doesn't sort of promise a perfect solution or to fix something. It it's just tries to do the best for the most people. But if we could all commit to that and understand it and see that it needs to be resourced and it's really important, which hopefully this time has taught us, um, we could in fact, we could avoid in the future much, lots of death and pain and suffering and economic loss and all the other things that we've experienced. Um, if we could just all get more comfortable with just following basic, very good sound Public health measures. Well, uh, we'll certainly uh, uh, return, uh, I think, to, to this important point you, you just made. Uh, I next wanted to ask you uh, in relation to uh, your current uh, occupations, uh, in particular about uh, the World Obesity Foundation, and, and uh, if you could tell us uh, how your activities uh, as a foundation have they been much impaired by the uh, sanitary protection regulations and the but also uh, by the public's general focus on COVID-19. So I think, so sort of the, 
for, for individual people um, with obesity or people in lockdown. Um, and again, remember that, you know, um, that there is actually uh, almost, you know, 800 million people, children and adults living with obesity worldwide and, and 2 billion living, you know, sort of overweight. Um, so it's, it's really extremely, extremely, um, you know, broadly prevalent across all countries. Um, at the individual level, people with obesity in particular had a very difficult time and people in lockdown in general also had a difficult time. There was loss of access uh, to medical care. It was difficult to get healthier foods. Certainly opportunities for physical activity were severely limited. There was a transition inherently to unhealthy sedentary lives. We all have children who, who have been online doing online school for the past mm -hmm. 16 months, which is, which is a huge loss. Uh, even socially, it has an impact on mental health. And then, of course, in many places, loss of loss for children of school-based food and physical activity opportunities, you know. So there's there's been, a, we've, we definitely know that there's been an increase in unhealthy weight gain uh, among children and adults as a consequence of this. And, and again, interrupted treatment for those who are fortunate enough to have that. But at the same time, the pandemic has also raised a great deal of awareness, I would say. Um, it, genuinely, people are much more aware of obesity, I think, than they have been, and, and indeed of, of the fact that it's it's more complex than just, you know, eat too much, move too little, that, that obesity is indeed a complex chronic disease. It's embedded in our genetic makeup. There's huge genetic drivers to it. It's very much accelerated by this, the environments in which we live, which in fact encourage uh, weight gain um, through uh, unhealthy foods, making, you know, healthier foods more costly, more difficult to transport, definitely, you know, to get to people in cities. Um, and then stigma and misunderstanding also making that worse. So there's, there's, a, there's, I think, a greater understanding of that, which is really helpful. I think what was fascinating for us and, and has meant that we've actually been extraordinarily busy is that early in the pandemic, it became clear that people with obesity, with a, with a BMI of 30 or greater, so body mass index mm -hmm. of 30 or greater, uh, were especially vulnerable to the complications of COVID. And indeed, as it turned out, to dying of COVID. It was so much so that, in fact, while age has been the biggest predictor of, of COVID, you know, the, the older you are, the, the more likely you are to have a difficult complications and, and, and to die from it, um, obesity could, could almost be considered the second biggest predictor. And, and also that because there's high rates of childhood obesity in many parts of the U.S. where I'm currently based, um, in those states in particular, like the state of Louisiana, for example, mm. obesity was driving down the age at which people were having complications from COVID, if that makes sense. So it was a, it was a very interesting, we've, we've been kind of, it's, you know, catching up with the unfolding science and the, and the evidence is really clear of the high association between the two. And so I guess, you know, looking ahead, if we were to want to prevent another pandemic like this, and I, and I think we all do, you know, it's not so much, you know, preventing the, the, the viruses, which, which already exist, but, but the, the widespread infection that we saw, and in fact, the, um, the ways in which we had to have lockdown associated with the strains in our health systems, uh, we need to do a better job of helping populations, including those obesity, with obesity, which very often is correlated, there's a high you know, comorbidity with heart disease, cancer, diabetes, other chronic non-communicable diseases that we need to help our populations to become healthier. Yeah. Well, uh, my, my next question indeed, you know, ties uh, into what you were just explaining about the, uh, of course, the, the awareness. And, and that is, if we can consider that the uh, pandemic has delivered to the population, a, uh, the global population, a, a wake-up call. And uh, whether this is something that can be used to bolster other public health causes, such as 
the one uh, your organization addresses, but uh, perhaps some other correlated ones? Yeah, I absolutely think so. And I think I think many other uh, health organizations in general, but 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 chronic disease, non-communicable diseases uh, organizations in particular, um, feel that this this has been a time where there's much greater awareness of how important it is to address heart disease, how important it is to address stroke and diabetes, and and also some of the other risks that that became sort of a bit exacerbated. So, you know, there was wider availability of of unhealthy foods, a wider availability of of, uh, alcohol, you know, which which taken in great degree can can be harmful as well. Um, So there's there's definitely, I think, we hope a wake-up call doesn't it's it's and this is because these are complex issues with a lot of drivers and a lot of you know financial interest in keeping you know in keeping unhealthy food out there and keeping um, you know tobacco out there it's 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 not simple to just sort of say snap our fingers and say let's let's fix this but I think this this greater awareness is really positive it was interesting because early in the pandemic again around last March. I sit on a, a World Health Organization working group on civil society and non-communicable diseases, and they had shared with us this, you know, one of those word clouds, which just showed what are the what are the kinds of requests for assistance and advice that they were getting from countries, from member states, from uh, health ministries, and others. You know, what what were they fielding? And, and words like obesity were coming up really prominently, and like heart disease, and like cancer, uh, and diabetes. And I think again, it's because countries. Wanted, you know, we're saying, wow, we we are really discovering that the, those populations who are who are who are already dealing with those diseases are are having the hardest time. How can you help us? And certainly, WHO did great work in terms of introducing much more guidelines around this. You know, trying to get common goals around this, and has continued to be, um, you know, attentive and, and really helpful in addressing with those. So, and and it's it's partly because it's flipping this, the script a little bit. Um, there's been a tendency to think of WHO as more focused on issues in low and middle income countries uh, with resources in a way and expertise coming from high income countries. But this was very much a kind of a flattening of the world in terms of um, the countries that were the most challenged as, as it turned out were often uh, higher income countries as well. Um, uh, well, um, I also wanted to address the, this this question to the experienced practitioner that you are, because uh, you also, of course, have uh, such a, an experience, especially uh, of tackling public health issues uh, within multilateral organizations. But uh, the field of public health being complex as it is, uh, I was wondering uh, whether you could explain to us uh, whether are, are some issues actually best tackled at a local or at a multilateral level and are some better suited to uh, either local or multilateral solutions i know it's a lot to ask yeah that's yeah and i think i think what i would say the answer to that in a way is yes you know there's yes both are true um it's funny because i i was thinking about this is a funny way of answering that which is in a way multi-sectoral issues which mm-hmm. is what obesity is, which is what chronic diseases are, other things like climate change, things that really cut across sectors. They don't just sit inside health. They sit inside agriculture. They sit inside education. They sit inside trade. Those, in a way, are most successfully addressed at the local level. So cities do a better job than than even countries and certainly the multilateral systems, in a way, because um, in cities, your constituency are right out your front door. You, you know, if you're in, you know, in city hall, if you're the mayor of a city, you work alongside your, your head of health and your, you know, everybody kind of works together for the health of the population that's right in front of them. And that when it's a complex issue in a way, 
it's best to do it that way, but, but you absolutely need uh, the multilateral system for, for multiple, multiple reasons. And so it was interesting, uh, the former WHO Director General Brundtland from Norway, she, was, uh, she did many things during her tenure, but one of them was the first ever public health treaty that WHO put together, which was on tobacco, the mm-hmm. Framework Convention on Tobacco Control. And, um, and, you know, she was sort of, it was suggested, why don't you just let member states solve their own tobacco challenge? At, the, at that point, there had been recognition that tobacco was, was, you know, like obesity is now, 25 years ago, tobacco was, was driving many chronic diseases and, and, and quite a bit of, of death, of avoidable death. She said, you know, you can't just leave this to member states. Tobacco can only be solved across borders because of the nature of trade, of how we move across borders, of production, like it's it's a cross-border issue inherently, just of course, like like viruses are, um, like pandemics are. Um, and and so that was a that was a very important point. And, and so the same is true that pandemics are cross-border issues and non-communicable diseases like obesity are as well. They're, the drivers include again changes in food systems, climate change, urbanization, um, you know, limited access to the ways we've changed our work. So a country can't control all the variables itself, and you need those multilateral agreements in a way, and multilateral thinking and exchange of knowledge and best practice. Um, infectious diseases are, are, are simpler in that sense. There's usually a single vector like, you know, uh, mosquitoes for malaria, as an example. So if you cut off the link to the vector, arguably, you, you cut off the disease, and it's, it's harder. And I think as we saw, even just with the ways that, that COVID has felt so confounding, there are all these different there's a simple transmission, but there's all these different drivers of it, including things like politics, mm-hmm. uh, which we certainly saw a lot of in the U.S. So the multilateral system has been very challenged, and it's you know it's good to question governance and representation. One thing I was going to also mention is that World Obesity Day this year, we we did a study of the countries with the ten highest and ten lowest challenges in terms of COVID complications and COVID death. It turned out they were also countries almost to a to a one, I think there was one or two exceptions that had the 10 highest and 10 lowest rates of obesity. So we saw, it's not that obesity is causing this, but that underlying health is is, is causing this. But the point is that the countries with the greatest complications, again, were, were the countries in high income countries. So this wasn't sort of a, you know, the US and the UK or, you know, Belgium or whoever has this all done and figured out and, you know, and other countries can, can use it as a model. It was absolutely not that model at all. Um, countries that did the best were those that had partnerships on multiple levels, including with community health workers and community leaders and the private sector. So it is multilateral needs to happen. So does local. That's my answer to your question. And uh, well, of course, uh, the final one uh, returns to multilateralism and uh, asking, of course, uh, someone who knows the organization uh, quite well, I wanted to uh, figure whether you thought that in the wake of the pandemic, the uh, World Health Organization, will it be able to improve on its uh, performance and footprint? Uh, I I deeply hope so. Um, I deeply, deeply hope so. And I think there's good reasons to believe that will be the case. We need, you know, the world, I think one thing that's been positive about this is there's no question that the world needs a good and effective WHO. People didn't understand that before. And certainly there are still those who who don't believe that, but I think far more people understand and recognize that WHO plays a really, really important role. Um, As you know, when I I teach on WHO at at GCSP, I always talk about finances and structure um, and how challenging they can make it because in the past two decades, there's been this explosion of global health funding, as you probably know. But WHO has a budget that just to put it really simply, it's about essentially 80% restricted or voluntary and 20% assessed or unrestricted. So it means that it has a very narrow 
budget and, and, and scope where it can really react and respond to new challenges like, of course, COVID and, and be adequately resourced to do those things. It means WHO has to deliver on its own program of work, but it also has to sort of deliver to donors and, and very little way of being, being able to respond to crises. And, and its governance, while there's a lot of that's very positive about that, can create constraints as well. I think WHO's budget is somewhere, is not too different from Ashuje, but it's different, you know, like a mid-sized hospital in the US. So, and it's meant to be the World Health Organization. It's governed by member states, but sometimes it seems as if when there's trouble, WHO is treated as if it's some sort of rogue agency when it's very much, again, governed by member states and it's carrying out preferences of member states and, and donors and, and ideally the people it's meant to help. So we have to stop treating WHO like it doesn't belong to all of us. And I think that that's part of it. We all have a role in um, the International Pandemic Preparedness Council had a number of recommendations, but I thought a couple were interesting having the director general have a seven year term and only one term is a great one because that gets you out of the politics of running again. Five years is not long enough. You know, different things like a high level global threats council, which has, you know, power to, to and, and moves quickly. And, and a lot to, again, I think, take us from this analog to this digital world that COVID has made really clear is, is what we're living in. Well, uh, that's already quite a lot. So uh, <laughs> this will be all we'll have time for today. But thank you so much, Joanna Ralston, for uh, speaking with us on these many issues and imperatives of uh, global public health. And I hope uh, your uh, advice will be vindicated. Great. Thank you. It's, it's my great pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you, Paul. Well, thanks, Joanna. To our listeners, as I indicated, this is our final program before the uh, summer recess, and I want to thank you for joining us on this and on the past 19 programs that we aired this spring. I hope you will perhaps uh, join us later this year to hear more about peace, security, and international cooperation in a new series of uh, GCSP events and podcasts. Thank you again to my colleagues at the GCSP, especially those at DAT, Ashley Muller and Christian Munoz, without whom these weekly podcasts would not have been possible. Thank you, listeners, for following us these past weeks on Anchor FM, on Apple iTunes, and subscribing to us on Spotify and on SoundCloud. I'm Dr. Paul Vallée with the Geneva Center for Security Policy, and wishing you a good, safe, healthy summer. Until another time, bye for now. Bye.